we're sitting down today to talk about a number of things again on the Gillette Health podcast. Uh, we'll try to debunk some bad science and talk about chocolate in your health, uh, whether the dose makes the poison or whether chocolate is truly a superfood. So I, I suppose we could start with uh, a claim that we came across where an individual was talking about uh, how a single fast food meal is worse for your health than uh, smoking a cigarette, or at least that's the interpretation. That's what we heard a lot of people talking about and mm -hmm. uh, got some questions on. So uh, first of all, I, I guess, is this true, yes or no? Should you be eating fast food or smoking or both? Probably shouldn't be doing either one of those things. It's, it's a weird discussion because they're talking about a single instance of two things that are very clearly detrimental for your health in the long run. But it's kind of the same idea, um, you know, what is, what is worse, um, you know, taking a punch to the liver or a punch to the head, taking one is probably not going to make a, a clini clinically significant effect in any way. However, if you do either one of those things in the long run, they're going to be cumulatively exponentially bad for your health. Yeah, and there is data out there with these <clears throat> predominantly high-fat meals, ultra-processed foods that does show associations both in the short term and the long term with elevations in C-reactive protein. And I don't know that necessarily getting caught up in the nuance of how long that takes to return to baseline you know, versus, you know, uh, a cigarette, you know, how long is that going to increase C-reactive protein when there's tons and tons of chemicals in there that have tons and tons of different effects. Yeah. And we know that over the long term, both of these things are going to be detrimental to health. Mm -hmm. So it sort of, everyone likes to compare things to smoking. Um, you, you could even compare the rate of like atherosclerosis in you know, someone with you know, severe dyslipidemia, you know, genetic, uh, you know, gain of function, PSCK9 mutation, they're actually going to have worse atherosclerosis than your average smoker. So, you know, comparing things to smoking is sort of a benchmark just when you're talking about hazard ratios and the dangers of things. Uh, but you can't necessarily take that subjective feeling. You know, how do most people feel after a fast food meal? While you're eating it, you're going to feel pretty good because yeah. the food is very tasty. Uh, but then afterwards, you're typically going to have a bit of a, a brain fog or a, a slump. Not everybody, but most people, you know, it's like, oh, I need to take a nap now. If you think about people after Thanksgiving, everyone wants to go sit down and just watch the football game and maybe grandpa falls asleep. Uh, but with a cigarette, most people are going to have a bit of a boost in mood because it has some of those antidepressant effects, which I don't know get talked about a whole lot, but it is a mild monoamine oxidase inhibitor. Mm -hmm. Nicotine and smoking cigarettes in general is a tough one because in a lot of cases, right when you stop, you have worse, like uh, transiently worsening of cognitive function, and you also just don't feel as good in general. So it is therapeutic. Um, arguably significantly more therapeutic than something like alcohol. But in the long run, it's detrimental. And there's so many other better stimulants or um, even uh, nicotine receptor agonists, cholinergic nootropics that you can use other than nicotine. And that being said, if you are just going to use nicotine one time, we get this question from time to time, you know, like what about a nicotine gum or what about even a nicotine vape? Um, or an ultra-low dose of nicotine. And in, infrequently, that's really not 
uh, going to be deleterious for your health, but it can also be quite addictive, especially if you're tempted to slowly increase the dose because you notice that beneficial function. So I think a slippery slope argument is valid for nicotine use. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's addictive. That's on the labels of any nicotine products now. So I think that's a, a good step in public health policy. And there are some people, maybe they can take nicotine once per week, a, a one or two milligram lozenge, mm-hmm. something like that. And they're able to sustain that. Yeah. And other people are going to go down that slope as you talked about. They're like, well, maybe I'll use it twice a week or I'll use it two days in a row just this once. And then that sort of snowballs into, you know, all of a sudden you're using these products much more than you would have initially intended to. Um, And then, you know, I think that could, you know, it doesn't seem like a typical case, but I guess that could be a gateway to, you know, using actual tobacco products if the tobacco products are going to have a more potent effect than just a nicotine product just because the other chemicals there. It's like a, a super nicotine, but not in a positive way. Um, and when people ask us about you know, cognitive optimization or brain fog, usually there's something either in their metabolic health or their lifestyle that is the rate limiting step. It's not a deficiency of nicotine. Yeah, that's true. So it can cover up a different lifestyle factor that can be optimized. Yeah, and, and it doesn't, doesn't make sense to use you know nicotine, for example, if you are just getting crap sleep and sleep again is one of those other things that comes down to lifestyle but if you're not sleeping well then your cognitive performance is not going to be where it needs Mm -hmm. to be is nicotine a good option to optimize your REM sleep (laughs) no nicotine if someone was going to use this probably should be used very early in the day Um, I would not use it at night it's going to have a negative impact on your sleep quality sleep architecture, your REM sleep, all those sorts of metrics. Mm -hmm. One other note is even on sleep trackers, some of them can get a general idea of how your REM sleep is, but it's not particularly accurate. Yeah, and the REM sleep and your calories burned on those fitness trackers, whether it's a Fitbit, Apple Watch, Samsung, whatever, whatever you're using, those metrics aren't particularly accurate. They'll get you in the ballpark, but um, they do seem to be fairly accurate for heart rate, which is why they've got a lot of positive press for detecting things like atrial fibrillation or if people are monitoring their heart rate during exercise, uh, they actually are fairly accurate for those things. Yep, great for heart rate, great for heart rate variability as well, which is arguably the most helpful uh, marker to look at your biometric data. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
So what about people putting butter in their coffee? Is this a, this is a health trend that's been around for probably five years, yep. maybe longer now, but at least the five years is probably the first time I heard it. Is this something that's healthy to do? Is this something people should be doing? Are we missing out by not putting butter in our coffees? When you're talking about butter in the coffee like that, I almost it's almost like taking a supplement. Like you're taking this butter because it is healthy, not for the taste, not because it brings joy to your life and you love butter. I love a, a good butter as well, um, but just because it's the coffee with the butter is better than the coffee without the butter, and that seems like it is a, a far overreaching statement. There's obviously a lot of calories in butter, so notwithstanding uh, if this butter or margarine or whatnot has trans fats or healthy fats or um, omega-3s, um, just looking at the pure calories, which is nine per gram of butter, that is a lot of calories, and most individuals in developed countries are consuming too many calories rather than too few. And to me, it does not seem like a good nutrient-dense option um, there's better nutrient-dense options to get your omega-3s than butter, and that seems like the main benefit that many people make with butter. So it does not seem worth it to put butter or really any calories in your coffee unless it brings you immense joy. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those things that we talk to people about all the time with weight loss is you want to eliminate liquid calories, and we tend to think of sugar-sweetened beverages, you know, yeah. very easy to overconsume those, but you're probably going to have even more calorie density depending on how much butter you're putting in your coffee. And, you know, I, I enjoy, you know, a pat of butter on you know, things occasionally or, yep. you know, butter and pasta sauces and, you know, margarine butter, you know, I honestly couldn't tell a major difference. So, you know, if it has something that's not going to be as you know, deleterious to my lipid panel, mm -hmm. I would probably choose that option. Yep. Um, and I do want to make the distinction, you know, a pat of butter, not a, a stick of butter. I'm not, uh, doing a, a liver king here and sitting down and having two sticks of butter <laughs> for dinner. But again, you people talk about the omega-3s, the fat-soluble vitamins that are in butter. Those things are there, but the quantity you would have to consume to get a beneficial mm -hmm. you know, value of that is just going to be, you know, your, your risk-reward balance is not there. The same thing with like, there may be a gram of fiber in your donut and yeah. you're supposed to get 30 or 40 grams of fiber. So... You could eat 30 or 40 donuts, but you know, at the same time, you're, you're getting the fiber, but you're not going to get much nutrition out of that. Yeah, not an ideal option. Um, adding other things to coffee, I know there's a trend to add like lion's mane um, or other various antioxidants or nootropics. That seems much more reasonable, and there's marginal amount of calories in them. So that would be a, a higher bang for your caloric buck. Yeah, and it's just the flavor that you're after. You could add a bit of skim milk, low-fat dairy product, and some sugar-free syrup. Mm -hmm. uh, I know there's a big controversy around artificial sweeteners and, and gut health, but again, it's, it's probably the dose that's going to, to make the poison. I know a number of years ago, uh, there was some preclinical models where they fed rats, mice, these inhumane amounts of artificial sweeteners, and then said, look, they get cancer when they do this. And well, it, Mice are very predisposed to cancer, yep. and for a person to consume that amount is just not not even feasible. Yeah, now that's a good point to make. Is at any dose, even water is toxic. One other interesting thing about butter is the more grass the 
uh, that has been consumed for the cow, make the, for the dairy cow making the butter, you, you can actually have a trans fat, and this is true of most ruminants, because of how ruminants um, metabolize in their stomachs, you can have a healthy trans omega-3 fatty acid. And uh, it's technically a trans fat, but your body can utilize it other, um, somewhat unlike other trans fats. So if there's a product that has trans fat on the label, but it is, uh, for example, grass-fed and finished, whether it's meat or whether it is even butter, then that is not necessarily unhealthy for that reason. Yeah, so this is a different type of trans fat than you get from, let's say, hydrogenated yes. soybean oil, these sort of more artificial processing techniques. You have basically a, a cow as your processing factory in this case, mm -hmm. and that form of trans fat is different. Do we know roughly what percentage of the, the butter that's making up, you know, back in the you know, 60s and 70s, I think it was something like maybe 15% of like your margarine butter yeah. substitute was actually trans fat, yeah. which we found out was not good. That was not good at all. <laughs> yeah, I believe it's the bacteria in one of the ruminant stomachs that changes the conformation from cis to trans, but it's really just an omega-3. Um, and in general, your omega-3s are they're some of your essential fatty acids, and they're the ones that we have the most difficulty getting in developed countries. That being said, something like a salmon or even like a hemp seed or hemp heart would be a much better source of omega-3s than grass-fed butter. Yeah, and I think for omega-3s, we can dissect that even a little bit more. Um, when I'm thinking of omega-3s, I, I tend to think of EPA and DHA, but there's also ALA, which can be converted to some degree to omega-3s. Um, this rate is actually increased in pregnancy, the conversion of ALA to the other omega-3s. But for your average person, you know, eating some walnuts or flaxseed to get your essential omega-3s, you're not gonna get a great conversion rate there. So it, sometimes I think there's some confusion there and they're like, well, I, I'm not gonna eat fish because I'm taking flaxseed and that's omega-3. Yeah. True, but you know, the components that are studied and found to be beneficial are EPA and DHA. ALA can have some unique benefits. For example, mm -hmm. it seems to be protective against uh, retinopathy and a couple different disease processes like mm -hmm. uh, type 1 diabetes. So it certainly has its place, but just so that people are aware of some of the differences there. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of other potentially therapeutic fats and also therapeutic fibers. And we're learning more and more about these. There's a a huge amount of clinical literature that's being released on these various niche fibers and what they do with the gut microbiome and what they do with your insulin sensitivity and also um, different fatty acids other than just EPA, DPA, DHA. So as time goes on, this is um, another notch in the belt of food is medicine. Yeah, it's another frontier and you have the, the microbiome, the gut brain axis, the estrobolome that has to do with your hormones. So there's all sorts of things that we're following and we're excited to see come out. But as far as you know, anything to manipulate the estrobolome right now and have a predictable clinical outcome, I don't think we're quite there. Yeah, um, even things like nutrigenomics, um, there's a lot, there's a lag between statistical significance and clinical significance. And you can have one, but you might not necessarily have the other. Yeah, I think those are great points. Um, you know, looking at the data and what that actually translates to in, in humans um, is very important. Um, in other news, uh, we find out that alcohol is bad for you. Uh, and 
the mechanism that this study brought up was interesting because it related to iron concentrations in the brain. I don't recall exactly what brain regions this was, um, but they looked at correlation between moderate alcohol intake, the level of alcohol intake, and then the amount of iron in these brains. And they also did this with some Mendelian randomization because there's a large mm -hmm. database of people who have moderate, low, high alcohol intakes. Mm -hmm. So iron levels in the brain would tend to be pro-aging, as we talked about on another podcast, because they're going to produce a lot of free radicals, a lot of oxidative stress. Yep. Alcohol is interesting because there is almost no long-term therapeutic effect, but acutely many people find a therapeutic effect, from partly from the agonism of GABA, which is gamma-immunobutyric acid, the main inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain, and also just from the uh, release of inhibitions. But again, there's many other um, ways to use either nootropics or even just lifestyle modifications are the best, tricking your brain into having that same therapeutic effect without the hormonal downsides and the hepatotoxicity and the potential increase of neurodegeneration that comes with um, even moderate alcohol consumption over time. Consistent alcohol consumption, uh, in our opinion, should always be avoided, but intermittent alcohol consumption with uh, a proper plan to address for the downsides of that is reasonable, even if it is just for social reasons. Yeah, and it is something that's fairly, I guess, ingrained in certain social circles and just social lives in general. People find themselves surrounded by alcohol, and yep. you know, even if that person doesn't need alcohol to feel, you know, disinhibited, uh, a lot of times they find themselves just going along with the social flow. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, you don't necessarily have to do that. There's certainly you know, zero alcohol by volume, you know, beers and yep. seltzers and things like that. Um, and then, like you said, we know the deleterious long-term effects. And there's a couple studies here and there that people try and um, you know, say that, well, a small amount is healthy. And I think any amount of alcohol is going to be bad for cognitive health and, and brain health, neuronal health in the long term. Mm -hmm. Especially um, cumulatively. Yeah, yeah, the dose over time. If you think of your, um, what do they say, say pack years of smoking, your... Yep keg years of alcohol or yep. something like that would be another metric to look at. Um, but there are some decreases in C-reactive protein associated with moderate alcohol consumption. But is that what you want to you know, hang your hat on as just one biomarker? Mm -hmm. Probably not. Uh, and then there's some studies that have you know, some flaws in methodology, I think, have been pointed out where they included former drinkers, people who maybe had a problem with alcohol and then they became sober that were also included as you know, z zero alcohol users, so you saw, oh, there's worse outcomes in this group, but they could have been drinking for 20 or 30 years and they developed liver failure. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's something that each individual has to look at what are the upsides and what are the downsides of. Absolutely. There's also screening questionnaires that can um, somewhat screen. None of them are great. Even the cage questionnaire is not great. One interesting test that uh, all of you can do as well is think about if you purchase alcohol, especially if it's like easily consumable alcohol, um, whether it's beer, seltzers or whatnot, and you put it in your fridge or you put it somewhere in your, somewhere in your house, 
how long does that last on average? Especially if you're not purchasing it for like, you know, you're not purchasing it for a birthday or social event or anything like that. Um, but if you just purchase it and then think and ponder over the question, how long is this going to last? If it lasts a really long time, then, um, then that's great. And if it just does, if there's always, if there comes a reason why you're consuming it, then potentially uh, that could be a warning sign that you're prone to higher consumption over time. Yeah, that's an interesting test people can do. Like if it's something that's regularly on your grocery list outside of special events or occasions, then that's probably one of those flags where you may want to look a little bit deeper, kind of self-evaluate and, and see what's going on there. Mm -hmm. Let's see, now we have um, chocolate that we'll talk about. So. There's been a lot of press for as long as I can remember about chocolate, and you'll see a headline where chocolate is good for you, headline where chocolate is bad for you. So how do we make sense of all this? And you know, we've seen the same thing with you know coffee over time. So it seems like there's these certain topics that people fixate on, and then is it good, is it bad? And I guess we can focus on chocolate and perhaps more accurately, cocoa for at this time. Yeah. Uh, um I think a good place to start is determining like what you're talking about when you're talking about chocolate. If anybody's been on a tour of a chocolate factory or a chocolate business, which I highly recommend, a, a great date opportunity as well. We've been a few times. They um, import the uh, cocoa and they separate it into the butter and then the uh, chocolate part. And it's a process and they refine it. And then depending on what ratio they're gonna make, they kind of mix it back together with sugar at times. So um, to me, chocolate, you're talking about the butter and then the refined dark chocolate part. So you, depending on the ratio you mix that back in, it can be higher in fat. The butter, of course, has a lot of fat in it. And then the uh, chocolate part is has a lot of antioxidants, it has epicatechins, it has a lot of the beneficial um, compounds, and many of them have been studied individually as well. For example, epicatechin as a myostatin inhibitor and an antioxidant as well. And then if you add in a lot of sugar and a lot of the butter or fat, then those are going to have separate health effects rather than just the um, pharmacologically active compounds. Yeah, and I think that's an important distinction is when I think of like uh, chocolate, someone will say, well, I have a small amount of chocolate each day. Okay, is that a Hershey's milk chocolate bar? Yep. Or is that 85% dark chocolate? Or is that just a scoop of raw cocoa? Mm -hmm. So you have different levels to it. And what most people are going to do is probably not take a raw cocoa supplement because they don't tend to be very mm -hmm. palatable, often bitter. So yep. they're either talking about your standard candy chocolate bar or a dark chocolate bar. Mm -hmm. Both of those are going to be high in fat. Yep. The sugar content is going to be much higher in, you know, I guess we're picking on Hershey's, but the Hershey's <laughs> bar. Yeah. So, so I don't expect to get sponsored by them. But in any case, the dark chocolate, something like 85%. The dose is what is important there. I don't think that eating an entire dark chocolate bar that's going to be like 400 calories yep. is a great use of your calories for the day to get your nutrition in. Yep. One square of that seems to be all that you really need to get the different benefits that are seen. 
So that's about you know, 60 to 80 calories, depending on the how the bar is broken down. And then you see some improvements in gut microbiome diversity, probably because of some of these other compounds that are in the cocoa itself, probably not because of the saturated fat. Yeah. And then you also see a bit of a boost in mood, and this is something I think is partially mediated by the, I want to say it's parazanthine that's in chocolate. Now, there's some caffeine in chocolate also, and mm -hmm. parazanthine is a metabolite of caffeine. So there's a bit of a mood-boosting effect there. Um, and then when you look more at just cocoa by itself, those other compounds there, some of which we probably still don't even know about, seem to be able to modulate blood pressure. And typically, this is looking at reducing blood pressure. Um, when you're looking at reducing blood pressure, a problem you have a lot of times is people have different fluid volume status, especially as you get older. So you don't want to push somebody's blood pressure too low. And when that happens, you have orthostasis, side effects. You get up, you're dizzy, you fall down. Yeah. With the cocoa, they actually did a study recently looking at, you know, if we give this to people, is it possibly going to push the blood pressure too low? And the answer was no. If the blood pressure was elevated, it lowered it appropriately. This is very mild, so probably you know, less than 10 points systolic. It's not going to replace your you know, combination antihypertensive therapy. But it could be a useful adjunct, or it could be a useful tool for someone with very pre-hypertension levels, like a systolic of 128 that they want to be you know, closer to 120. Mm -hmm. So I think that's interesting and that's a trend I see with a lot of supplements is that they tend to be more modulatory than directly targeting one I guess one aspect of health regardless of the level. That's certainly one property of most supplements that is advantageous over medications especially for optimization purposes. Another good test that you can do if you were a chocolate lover um, for example myself you can use something that's called, and most refineries or chocolate shops would have this, um, cocoa nibs. And the nibs um, are basically a product that is taken before, it has some fat, but it is um, very bitter, there's no sugar in it. And you can add those to something like Greek yogurt and you can see if you um, still like the, the actual like bitterness or the taste of the beneficial compounds in chocolate while removing the variable of being in a chocolate bar. Yeah, so if someone right now is um, addicted to Hershey's chocolate bars, I've heard people say this, you know, I'm addicted to them, I just can't stop mm -hmm. eating them. How would you wean yourself off of Hershey's chocolate onto something like cocoa nibs? I suppose there's a few ways to do it. We talked about smoking, um, now we're talking about quitting chocolate. Yeah. I don't <laughs> think that there would be a great degree of physiologic dependency or physiologic um, addiction. So you could just switch straight to cacao nibs and see if you're actually addicted to chocolate or if you're addicted to the sugar and high content of fat or uh, cocoa butter in it. Um, but uh, I suppose the easiest way to do it if you wanted to have a, a nice trickle down is just increase the percentage of dark chocolate. Go up and up and up in percent. Eventually work your way to cacao nibs. And that way, if you're addicted to the beneficial beneficial compound in that, then you're good to go. Yeah, it's an interesting interesting topic, and there's many strategies. I mean, you could quit you could quit chocolate cold you turkey could. just like smoking. And yeah. some people can, some people can't. 
but at the end of the day, I think it's the cocoa compound itself as opposed to the other things we add to it that have the health benefits. Definitely. Let's see. One more point on chocolate is it the compounds in it could be particularly beneficial during pregnancy as both antioxidants and there's a few studies, I believe, on epicatechin um, as far as like breathing or um, potentially being beneficial for the respiratory system or diaphragm of the fetus. I don't know if that has to do with its lecithin to sphingomyelin ratio, perhaps its ability to produce surfactant, or maybe it just has to do with the function of the diaphragm in general. Um, but it is potentially a great option during pregnancy, of course, watching the calories as always. Yeah, and maybe that's a topic that we dive into is, you know, what do the current guidelines say for pregnancy and, you know, what are some things that could be potentially added there that have, mm -hmm. you know, neutral or beneficial effects on health. But perhaps we save that one for another day. We could probably do an hour just on that. We could for sure. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.